thanks. Good morning. Okay, here we are back again. And again, the church is split between this side and that side. Well, and a few of you, though, I did notice have chosen the sun. God bless you for choosing the sun this morning. A few of you out there ready, got your sunscreen on or already got your base, right? Your base is already there. So God bless you for that. Well, let's go ahead and just dive right into things. It's going to be an exciting morning. Uh, this is the day we're uh, in process of rebuilding our uh, uh, cross crew ministry. And so a number of parents or uh, kids are there. And so that's happening. And uh, we'll also have some music following the message as well. So uh, that's an element that's so important to us is being able to respond to the message through worship. So we'll have Nick and uh, Summer will be back up at the end of the message to lead us again in responding to the word of God. We'll also share communion together this morning. Well, where are we going? Where are we going? Having spent several months in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, we are turning next to the New Testament letter of Philippians. Philippians is a joyful letter that's main theme truly is Jesus. Of the 104 verses in Philippians, 51 times, 51 times Jesus's name or title is used. It is Paul's most informal letter and is overflowing with love and affection. We also find in Philippians a compelling pattern of how Christians can build partnerships to communicate the story of Jesus. But why Philippians now? Well, it is because we find in it so many parallels to our situation today. For example, the church today finds itself in challenging situation and is often in retreat. And a church is often uncertain of its message. Well, Paul in his era, though his message was clear, he was misunderstood and misrepresented. The ancient church was likewise tensed up because of menacing opposition. It too felt the temptation to be silent or to compromise its message. Another example, in the church at Philippi, there was internal unrest. Some members were posturing for positions driven by ego or dark impulses or pursuing empty glory. In this letter, we find some of Paul's most beautiful, most persuasive appeals for unity in the church. And the unity he appeals to is ultimately Jesus-centered. The cultural and political pressures that we've all faced in this last year have brought internal unrest to the church, not just here, but literally around the world. Few churches have not felt those tremors. And a third example, in Philippi, there was also the challenge of false doctrines seeping into the church. And this too is on the increase in our days, and it can be especially painful when it comes from those who were once known, once loved, once a part of the church. Well, we're going to find these and other parallels to our own situations as we walk through Philippians and as the words of scripture guided and empowered them so they too can guide and empower us today. Now, as I said earlier, this is a very joyful letter. 
It is not all doom and gloom. And this is a church that had a vitalized partnership in doing gospel work with Paul, the Apostle Paul. They each found great joy and camaraderie in working together. This church here in Philippi that we're going to learn about is an example to us, a model to us of how to be the church in our time for our generation, to learn it, to live it, to imitate its purpose. It is to create a church that reenacts the life of Jesus at a time when people desperately need to hear about him and desperately need to see the gospel lived out authentically. Can you say this morning, can you say that I'd like to be a part of a church like that? And if you can, then this epistle is going to show us how to do it. Just stand, please. And I'm going to read first 11 verses out of chapter 1. And you can follow along, um, again, in your device or the scriptures. Again, if you're, if you're watching on if you're watching online, or if you're here, all of the sermon notes this morning are in the Bible app, so you can follow that outline as well. But let's read God's Word together. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains are defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Now the seeds, for every theme we'll go through out this book, the next eight weeks, are all found in these first 11 verses. And we're going to ask the question this morning, what makes up a vitalized partnership? What makes up a vitalized partnership to partner together in this work of the gospel? There's three, at least three things I see. One is eagle-less leaders. Two is energized members. And three, an exciting vision for the future. Bow with me and let's pray that God makes his word come alive to us. Father, your words becoming 
alive to us and real to us is truly a work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this morning that we would be open to your spirit working in us to help us appreciate and to raise our vision of what the church could be, what a partnership in this gospel work might look like. We pray this in Christ's name for his glory and our good. Amen. 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 All right. Let's start with this first point of egoless leaders. I found, I keep wanting to say like ego waffles, but it's a hard word to say. Egoless. And that's probably not even a word, but I made it up. Egoless leaders. You know, the very form of this letter indicates what kind of leader Paul is. Based on the tone of this letter and based on the structure of this letter, it fits a pattern in ancient literature known as a friendship letter. In Philippians, Paul does not assert his apostolic authority like he did in other letters to other churches. The Philippians are his friends, not just church members. The relational tie is stronger than the organizational tie. They are not projects in his professional career. In verse 4, he thanks them for their partnership. It gives him joy. And he goes on to say, and this is radical for leadership, in any period of time, he says, you are in my heart. That kind of love is more than duty our obligation. It is free. It is full. It is comprehensive. It is attached to an enthusiastic joy over others. He loves them with the very affection of Jesus. It means that he loves them as Jesus loves them, and he loves them through his spiritual union with Jesus. He says in verse 7 that you share in the grace of God with me. Now, this could refer to the grace received as salvation, a grace they equally needed. Or it could refer to the grace they both experienced in the work of confirming and defending the gospel. Defending, of course, implies that there was pushback and even rejection and even suffering. Actually, the story of Paul's suffering identified here goes back to Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, we have the account of Paul and his team starting the church in Philippi. And there were many startling victories, but there was also pushback from the Roman authorities. And this resulted in Paul and his partner Silas being unjustly beaten and imprisoned. Indeed, this letter that Paul's writing now, though some years later, it is being written from a Roman prison. He's imprisoned now under a whole new set of circumstances. Paul alludes to that suffering. If you look in chapter 1, verse 30, he alludes to the suffering both past and presence. In chapter 1, he says, you Philippians also have suffered 
and you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So what is Paul saying in relation to sharing in the same grace? That none of this, not my position as your first teacher or as the founder of this church or what I have suffered, none of that in any way makes me superior to you. I am not on a higher spiritual plane than you. My tenure or the revelations that I have received does not make me more important in the kingdom of God. I needed the grace of God as much as you did. We share in the same grace that saves. We share in the same grace to communicate the story of Jesus. We share in the same grace when we experience answered prayer. We share in the same grace when the gospel requires us to suffer. You see, this way of seeing oneself, especially if you are in leadership, this way of appropriately weighing your education, our gifts, our experience, all this lays the platform for egoless leaders. The gospel of Jesus creates a platform for this through his own sacrificial life and example. Jesus' example provides a power. It provides an energy that nothing in the secular world can match for inspiring and empowering egoless leaders. You know, the secular business world certainly recognizes this value, doesn't it? There are many business books about egoless are humble leaders. And yet, they cannot match the selfless motivation of the ethic that Paul is living by. Even if secular leaders abandon all the go-to materialistic motivations, the posh office, the, the incredible outrageous salaries, the status and so forth, even if they abandon all those and find Motivation in more altruistic rewards, such as legacy or philanthropy. Even then, leaders in the kingdom of God who are following Jesus are called to be different. They are called to die to self completely. They lay down even the right to control how they are remembered. They are called by Jesus not to advertise or promote their giving or their philanthropy. If you have read many biographies of the early founders of our nation, one of the negative traits that stands out is how obsessed some of them were with their legacy, with how they would be remembered. John Adams in particularly stands out. Obsession with legacy is actually a big part of the story of Alexander Hamilton, and it's brought out artistically in the musical. But Christian leaders are content to die being forgotten. They're content to die being forgotten, knowing that they are known by their Savior in heaven. 
What's important to a believer is that Jesus is known and remembered. And if they are forgotten or if their legacy comes out in a way different than they anticipated, they die to that. They die to that. This is egoist leadership. We see it even in the letter's opening. Paul says that we are servants of Jesus. And in the highly Roman stratified society, obviously servants were on the bottom rung. They were a despised class with no rights. Paul's identification as a servant of Jesus indicates a completely upside down view of leadership. And he reinforces it again in his very greeting when he flips traditional salutations and says hello to the church members first. And then he says, oh yeah, hello to you elders and deacons too, by the way. Egoless leaders in their manner, in their decision-making, in their words, in their releasing of others, in their expressions of confidence, in their lack of worry about who gets the credit, create a culture where others feel needed and feel valued as partners. Egoless leaders draw, attract, and inspire others to a vitalized partnership. It is healthy and egoless leadership is where the grace of God begins to build vitalized gospel partnerships. Let's look at the second point. And this is energized members. So we have egoless leaders and secondly, energized members. Who were these members? of the church in Philippi. Well, I want to get into some specific names in a moment, but first let's do a little background to appreciate how we got here. A little history will help us appreciate the makeup of this congregation. Philippi took its name from Alexander the Great, Philip II of Macedon. He captured the city in 360 BC. And though the city was filled with Greek citizens, later Philippi was home to two decisive battles involving the Roman Empire. One of those involved, uh, one of those battles involved armies allied with the murdered Julius Caesar. They defeated the rebel armies of Brutus and Cassius. Again, you might remember those names, the conspirators who murdered Caesar. As a reward to the victors, many Roman war veterans settled in Philippi, and the new Caesar honored the city by designating it as a Roman colony and granting Roman citizenship to all of its inhabitants. Now, that was a big deal. Roman citizens enjoyed legal privileges and financial advantages. Philippi, over time, would become a Rome in miniature. Latin was spoken there, and the coins bore Latin inscriptions. So, though possessing many Greek citizens, this was a city bearing the look and feel of Rome and thick with Roman national patriotism. Now, that last point was of great political significance for the believers there, the Christians. Paul wrote this around 60 or 62 AD, and the emperor at that point was Nero, to whom the citizens of Philippi were very loyal. And Nero bore the titles Lord and Savior. 
Those were his designations. Now, the Roman emperors, when they were deified, they demanded that the ancient gods, all these ancient traditional gods that were sanctioned by the state, they demanded that these gods be worshipped. Didn't matter which one. Actually, you had a, it was a whole pantheon. You could choose whichever one you want, as long as they were on the menu. Worship of gods like Jupiter, for example. And you would go to the temple of Jupiter and make the required sacrifice. Now, the reason that was so important to the Roman authorities is because they believed in something called the Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. And so as long as all of the citizens made their required sacrifices, the gods would be appeased and they would bless us in battle and they would preserve the peace. Well, obviously this was a great problem for Christians because they worshiped only Jesus and they could not in good conscience participate in these pagan rituals. And thus they were regarded as atheists, actually. They were because they didn't believe in the tradi traditional gods. They were regarded as traitors, as undermining the state because of their refusal to sacrifice. And thus they threatened peace with the gods. Their refusal to bow before the state over the next several hundred years would lead thousands upon thousands to meet the worst kind of untimely deaths that you could ever imagine. This is what lay in the future for the believers at Philippi. So that gives you a little background of how we got to where we are. But for the moment, for the moment, who are the members of this church that we actually meet? Well, we meet, for example, a woman named Lydia. She was a merchant. She was the first convert. Another unlikely convert was the jailer and his family, the very prison where Paul was imprisoned. And he was attracted to Christ through Paul's kindness. He and his whole family became Christians at that moment after an earthquake had rumbled through the jailhouse. Paul and Silas's kindness their rejoicing and joy in the circumstances drew this man and his family to Christ. He belonged to the artisan class. And finally, a young girl who may have been a convert from whom Paul cast out an evil spirit, she was from a slave caste. And so what we find in this church is an urban-centered church with a rich social diversity. And actually in Philippi, we will meet two more prominent women. They seem to be leaders in the church, Yodia and Syncety. We'll meet them in chapter four. This is consistent with other ancient sources showing that in Philippi, women had more social and more economic opportunities than anywhere else in the Roman Empire. So these members, the members of this church, what else do we know about them, about their activities? Well, one, we know they were not passive. They did not rely on leadership before they got engaged in ministry. They took ownership for the church and its future. They did not shut the church down or they did not end the ministry when their future leaders and when their leaders were in trouble. Look at chapter 1 and verse 14. 
an amazing, remarkable verse. It says that Paul says, even when I was imprisoned, many of the brothers and sisters actually became bolder in their faith. Isn't that a great picture? These are normal, everyday Christians who, when their leader was suffering, stepped to the plate and were emboldened to share their faith even more. They are communicating, they were communicating the story of Jesus. It wasn't just a special few leaders. Here's another example of how they were energized. The Philippians had a very long history of giving financially to Paul's needs and his work. Indeed, this letter from Paul is in response to the financial and emotional support the Philippians gave to him. That came through a man we'll meet in chapter 2 who was sent to him from the church named Epaphroditus. And in the fourth chapter in verse 14, we learn that the Philippians gave to Paul when no one else was stepping up and that they gave sacrificially. They believed in Paul and they believed not only in Paul, they believed in the ministry itself. So they took up the communication of the Jesus story to their friends. They gave sacrificially and financially. And as a third example, look at verse 19 in chapter one. They prayed for Paul when he was in distress. Paul says that your prayers will work towards my deliverance. From what we know about this church, we know these prayers were not just um, religious duty or polite words, like we might say to somebody on Facebook. These prayers were not simply in an abstract form of meditation. No, we, we can picture this church on its knees with a vigorous faith in God, praying for Paul's deliverance. In our own reading, in verse 5, Paul says, you became partners in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day you became partners. Again, we see that in the, in the sharing of ministry. We see it in their financial and emotional support of him. We see it in their prayers for him. But I think this hints at even more. If we put this into the context of the whole book, partnership from the first day, I believe the partnering he refers to includes a reorientation, a remapping of, one, of one's life goals. How did this happen? These men and women in Philippi recognized from day one that in the gospel, they had found a great treasure. They had discovered the kingdom of God, the love of God, the mysteries of life, the paradoxes of life came together with beautiful resolution in the person of Jesus. The Christ who had died for them was worthy of living for. Indeed, their entire lives now belonged to him. Now their lives must reflect the gospel itself. As Paul would tell them, you are now citizens of heaven. Live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel. This was more than simply adding a few behaviors. This was a total reconstruction of what one valued, of what one was living for. This is the great treasure that Paul described in chapter 3, a treasure so valuable, so worthy, so encompassing that 
it causes every other treasure to fade. This is what creates a partnership. Egoless leaders and energized membership. Let's look now at the third point. And that is an exciting vision of the future. Right? Isn't it true that any meaningful partnership of any endeavor, if it's business, if it's political, if it's a sports team, must share in an exciting vision of the future. Paul and the Philippians share in that. What is it? What is it? It is the day of Christ. And it was never far from Paul's mind. Six times he will refer to it in this letter and twice just in the section we read in verse 6 and in verse 10. What is the day of Christ? It is the day when Christ returns for his bride, his church, or the day that we meet him face to face after our physical death. For the Christian, this does not have to be a day of terror or shame. It does not have to be a day of dread or a day of fear. It can be a day to look forward to, to dream about, to be excited about. This ultimate goal shapes everything. And this, it's all there in verses 9 through 10 in Paul's prayer. Paul encapsulates this purpose in verses 9 and 10. And this is the goal, by the way, that Christian leaders should have for their congregation. Let's read it one more time. Verse 9 and 10. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is the goal that we participate in. Yes, Jesus is the source of our salvation. And in verse 6, we learn he will help us persevere in it. If you, brothers and sisters, if we have borne evidence of our salvation through partnering in the gospel, he will bring you to the end safely. He will give us his Holy Spirit to help us endure until that day. It's good news. Yet we also play a critical role. We also must work every day towards this day. We have been recreated by Christ and he has good works for us to walk in. It is by our obedience to Jesus, active, personal, voluntary, and sacrificial obedience that we begin to fully understand and experience what our salvation means. The follower of Christ is a person with a goal, an aim, a direction, because they have a Savior to meet. It is not a half-hearted, 50% effort, done when convenient, giving the leftovers of my life. It's not that but rather it is an everyday relationship of loving God and loving others, giving him the best of who I am with my whole heart. 
It is a life characterized by denying that self-first impulse, taking up our own cross and following Jesus. If you look at the actual verse, verse 9, and I like to credit here, by the way, commentator Alec Motier, he really had some inspirational thoughts, and I've, it's shaped here what I'm sharing here about these verses. What must abound more and more? Where does our growth begin? It begins with love. May your love abound more and more. The beginning seed to Christian growth is love, abounding love. And that growth will be robust and energetic like plants thrusting up out of the ground. And there are two stakes that keep the plant growing upward. That is the knowledge and depth of insight or discernment that Paul prays will accompany that love. With the dynamic of, or, of organic energy and the guiding structures of discernment, what happens? You've seen it. Leaves and blossoms unfold and the fruit that comes are all the visible evidence that growth is occurring. Look at what happens next in this verse. This love and knowledge helps us do what? It helps the believer discern to approve what is best. In other words, as recreated human beings, believers are empowered to choose a distinctly unique Christian lifestyle that is different than our culture. Believers, their lifestyle ought to reflect what matters most in life. And thus, they walk in the pattern, in the way of Jesus. They emulate his spiritual disciplines. Their affections become his. Their loves become his. And in their relation to the material world and to people, everything comes under the sway of Jesus. Look again at verse 11. What happens then when we have the ability to, and the spiritual discernment to approve what is best, to wrap our lives around what matters most? Look what happens next. At the very core of this lifestyle is God-likeness or holiness. And the words he uses is first the inner person, referring to our purity, there will be a purity, a transparency, and openness about us. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But it will not just be an internal work of the inner person. It will also be reflected in our outer behaviors. We will be blameless, he says. Meaning that no one can bring any kind of justified charge against us. We've, we're peacemakers. We've resolved issues. Nobody out there can bring any kind of justified charge against me. I've resolved issues. I've, I've done my best to be at peace with everyone. I'm blameless. This is not just a goal, folks. If you, some of you who know the way we uh, appoint pastors, you see, this is not just a goal for pastors. This is the goal for the ordinary Christian 
to be blameless in your relationship with people here, with people in your community, with the people that you work with. And see, then in verse 11, the seed becomes a harvest of righteousness. All of your pressing towards that day, seeking to please the one who died for you. All of your life work. Think about it. All your life work. Though stained (laughs) and imperfect because it's still stained by our sin and by the fall of this world, on that day, your work and your life will finally be perfected in Jesus. You will be perfected in him, for he is your righteousness. He will make you complete for the, before the Father, and he will present you as complete before the Father. That's the culmination of the gospel. It's climax. And all this will bring glory to God. Your life will be made complete in him. Your life will bring credit and applause to God. Can you imagine any purpose more significant? That is the destiny that you are called to. That's why we've been created. You are growing to glory. You, friend, you are growing to glory. This is your destiny, what you've been created for. What a powerful prayer that Paul prays. And it's something you can imitate by praying it over your children or over your own life or over our church, which we have done many, many and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I have prayed that prayer over this church, our church. Okay, let me just mention a couple of quick applications here. First, let me speak to life group leaders. Let me speak to ministry leaders who are involved with people. You might be a cross crew worker. You might work with middle school students. You might work with high school students. You might work with men. You might work with women. But you're involved in our people intensive ministries. You lead a life group. Let me speak to you for a moment. Paul gives you the pattern of how to lead. And it begins with a right view of those that you lead. How do you view them? As a project? As a necessary duty? Has some requirement for you to check off some list as it relates to your own justification or performance? Or do you see yourself as one who is sharing in grace with them? Do you see them as friends, as co-workers? It all starts with the spiritual discipline of prayer for those you are leading, giving thanks for them, seeing their positive qualities, recognizing their inherent worth and potential. That's how Paul could pray with joy. Are you struggling with bad attitudes towards the people that you're leading? Start giving thanks for them and start praying with joy for them. And you'll find your attitude quickly becoming more Christ-like. Secondly, many of you have told us or begged us that you want to be equipped. You want to know how to relate this gospel to your friends and co-workers. 
just as this church did, just as this Philippi church did. Brothers and sisters got out there and were sharing, even in perilous circumstances. You've told us, hey, all the maps have changed. The culture has changed and we need help. Well, helping you prepare, helping you be ready, that is our mantra right now in this season of our church life. And let me throw my encouragement behind the announcement that Alex made for our next Monday night equip. I spent quite a bit of time with John Lieb. And John was so inspiring, sharing stories of number of people that he led to Jesus, coming from a place of atheism, coming from a place of different religions, using a methodology that anyone in this room can use. If you love people and if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you can do it. And so if you're wanting to up your game, if you're wanting to be more practically engaged and loving those who are far from God, this is one practical training that you can take. It's Monday night, the 21st from 8 to 9. Again, Alex said, you got to sign up so we can send you the login information. And if nothing else, even if you don't imitate or, or do this approach that John has sharing with us, hey, just his faith, just his faith, just his stories will inspire you to realize God has not stopped working. God is working. And we just want to work alongside of him. Nick, why don't you guys come on up. And why don't you pull out, if you would, the, the, um, your communion. The bread and the cup. So having received God's word, having received God's word, we now have a chance to respond in love to Jesus in devotion to him. What is communion about? Certainly in this time, we remember Jesus. We remember our forgiveness. We remember our justification. And communion is also a time to renew our commitment. And as we take communion this morning, I would ask you this question. Necessary pause. I would ask you this question. Is what you're living for worthy of Christ dying for? Is what you're living for worthy of Christ dying for? He gave his life for you, not only to take you to heaven, but for you to become an energized member of his church, praying, giving, sharing your faith and partnering in the gospel. The bread reminds us of how he gave his body and he gave his life. Let's go ahead and take the bread together now. of how he gave his blood. 
the sacrifice required for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take the cup, and as we do, let's offer our lives to him as an act of worship, a living sacrifice, saying, Lord, my life is yours. Use me however you wish. Thank you for the bread and the cup, the reminder that you gave your life for us. And now as justified and forgiven and freed believers, we freely give our life to you. Our life belongs to you. Consume us. Take us. Help us to press forward to that day when everything will be perfected and made complete. All of my life's work, all of my heartache, all of my aspirations will be finally realized on that day.